Welcome to Godpod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, welcome to Godpod 36. And uh, today we have. Um, yeah, we have the, the usual, usual suspects. We do indeed. You can tell from that voice that it's Mike here, sitting on the other side of the, not biscuits today, but um, chocolates and coffee. And we have Jane. Yes, I'm here too. And uh, myself, Graham Tomlin. And we also have a special guest, Andrew Walker, Professor Andrew Walker from King's College London. Nice to be here. Very good to have you with us, Andrew, and uh, to joining us joining us on um, Godpod. I, I met someone last week who um, had come to a conference here, I think they were from Colombia, and uh, this person said they they listen to Godpod quite regularly, and and, and they'd kind of recognise my my voice because they'd heard it on this thing, and he said he said um, he said oh I'm, you know I'm very surprised to meet you because when I'd heard you before I I sort of envisaged this sort of sixty year old man who was rather <laughs> old bald and fat. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got an old bald bald fat voice. Have you? <laughs> he was thinking of me except for the fat. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who've never seen me, I don't think I'm that, well, I may be a bit old, but I'm, <laughs> I don't think I'm bald yet. And it's not that fat. So, uh, It'll be interesting to see how the rest of us are yes, imagined I, I don't, around the world. I don't think we want to know that, really, no. do we? Don't no, you? I don't right. think. You, you can't judge a person's looks by their voice. That's no. definite. No, I, 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 I do I hope so. I myself as having a, a radio face, really. <laughs> 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 yeah, so you look very good on radio. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, um, Andrew, it's great to have you with us today. And... Um, Tell, tell us a little bit about you, what you do at King's and um, your interests. And sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a professor of theology and education in the education department. Uh, I'm sort of semi-retired, and uh, I mainly supervise PhD students and um, look at research projects of various kinds. I do lots of work in London parishes for catechesis and training Hmm. uh, in theological ministry of one kind or another. But what I do most of all is get other people to do things better than I can. (laughs) (laughs) If I can give you an example, I'm very pleased that uh, we have Alistair McGrath, who's come to join us in what's called CTRC, the Mm. Centre for Theology, Religion and Culture, Mm. which is the little group in the education department. He's coming to head up that group. And Mm. so we're looking forward Mm. to him coming enormously. Mm. And I must also just point out, we have another person coming from Bristol, James Mm. Stephen. An old friend, yes. Old Uh, lecturer. Well, both previous lecturers. here to to lecture, isn't he? Yes. He was my PhD student, so I'm pleased to see him back. And uh, it's nice to have him because he does a lot of work. (laughs) We're we're, we're also delighted that you're bringing Alistair to London because obviously he's an old friend of... um, St. Paul's Centre, and he's been on Godpod and spoken on various bits and pieces, and uh, so we're, we're, we're very pleased he's well, we welcome back this way. We welcome his enthusiasm in particular. Yeah, it'd be very good. That's right. Yeah, and but the kind of sorry, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the kind of um, um, theological research projects that you oversee. What kind of areas do they cluster in? Because you can you know so many things, Andrew. Well, it's, it's very difficult to to say because people assume it's all about education. Well, it's, it's about culture, religion, and education. Yeah. We do empirical studies into uh, what people actually do in church. 
Um, we try to make a difference between what people say they do and what they do. <laughs> um, and then we, we look at um, public policy issues a great deal. We have somebody called Luke Bretherton, who's also oh. been here. Yes, he Luke is particularly interested in the interface between ethics, Christian belief, and um, public policy mm-hmm. in terms of government and social work agencies, that sort of thing. That's a major area we're expanding into. I've mainly uh, been working in um, what takes place in churches because my big concern is that theology is something theologians do in universities. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be something people do in churches. Mm. So I'm all for rescuing theology. Take it back out the academy, as the Americans say, and stick it back in the church where it belongs. Almost exactly our motto. Excellent. We have this little... I've come to the right place. theme in St. Paul's Theological Centre, you know, our sort of strapline is bringing theology back into the heart of the church. And um, I guess this is, Godpod is part of that because it's, it's enabling people to take part in theological discussion wherever they happen to be around the world. So, it's, so we're absolutely on the well, same page we, with you. Well, I think we learn, don't we, yeah. that actually uh, people who are not trained in theology are perfectly capable of absolutely. asking good theological mm. questions. Well, personally yeah. capable and, and longing to do so absolutely. in a way that they can engage with people. Though, yeah. as you say, not much theology goes on mm. in the church. People are desperately mm. wanting it. I, I absolutely yeah. agree. Well, it's, it's a lot, I think there's a lot of instinctive theology goes on in churches. Right. Because if people have sort of deep th- instinctive theological um, impulses, um, convictions... And it's partly bringing those to the surface and articulating them and then, you know, critiquing mm. them and, and helping people to develop what's already there rather than somehow impose something on them, I think. Well, every time you pray or sing, you're actually doing theology, aren't you? You're saying something about yeah. God. So actually helping people to reflect on what they, what they mean and what they're doing is just really exciting. Yeah. And well, quite often when people are uneasy with something that's going on in, in their church life or, or whatever... Um, when you unpack that, there's actually a quite sound theological yes. <laughs> instinct yeah. being demonstrated there. Yeah. There's a quite, some good theological reason why they're uneasy. Well, I think of theology as God talk. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, you don't have to be a professional. Um, you just have to be a believer. Certainly. And uh, I remember years ago in Birmingham when the, as it was then called, Black-White Partnership was set up between the uh, independent uh, Pentecostal churches which are mainly Afro-Caribbean, and um, the mainly white churches, which were Anglican. And when they got together, they found they all did theology, uh, but in different ways. Mm -hmm. And um, what was really interesting is is that uh, the West Indians uh, used to ask very big questions to which people had no answers. Mm -hmm. Like, um, well... um, why have you got to do a degree in theology in order to be able to talk about God? And uh, it was a bit awkward because uh, the person who asked the question had a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> do do you, in, interesting, you say, you know, you, you don't have to be a professional, you just have to be a believer. Do you even have to be a believer to do theology? No, do you think? I think you have to be a human being. Yes, mm. that helps. I mean, it might sound... I imagine that would help. It, might, it does help a little bit. Well, um, there's Andrew Lindsay... Uh, who is the world's greatest theologian on animals, uh, I'm not quite sure whether he thinks dogs might ask <laughs> questions or not. It's difficult to understand them when they do, don't they? Yes. yes. But I, we don't have to. God yes. might. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you a story. Uh, I've just come back from Turkey, and when the imam would uh, call for prayer, the dog next door would howl. 
Mm. And I couldn't quite sort out whether he was praying with the imam or objecting. Oh. Um, but he was doing something. Mm. Yes. Yeah, yes, mm. our, our, our dog barks when we pray mm. at home, which is rather strange. But um, Probably thinks your theology is a bit rough. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a good one, Mike. I well, don't think we'll edit that one of your best. Yes, exactly. Shows you the quality of the others. Andrew, you've also had a really interesting sort of journey in Christian faith as well, which has sort of included new churches and and ending up with with the Orthodox Church. We'd love to hear a bit of that story and 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 uh, you know where you've come from and where you've got to in terms of the, the wider Christian church? Well, I think a, a bit of is a, bit of, yeah. is a good idea. <laughs> uh, two things which are interesting is that I've only ever belonged to two denominations. One was the Elim Pentecostal Church in which I was born. My father was a pastor. And the second was the Orthodox Church, of which I've mainly been in um, a Russian version of Orthodoxy. Mm. Um, in between uh, those two um, expressions of Christianity, I've spent most of my time with Anglicans and Evangelicals, Baptists. Um, oh. You might say, say, why is that? Um, I'll tell you, if I may. Uh, when I wanted to become an Orthodox after many years of um, agnosticism, I went to have an interview with the then Archbishop Anthony Bloom, oh. Metropolitan Anthony. Wonderful man. And he said to me, um, what makes you think we want to have you? <laughs> and I thought, what's he mean? So I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I want you to understand that Christ has brought you to us. You are not coming to us to find Christ. You've known him since you were a young man. And if you're coming to us, I would want you to go back and build the bridges to the people you've left behind. Mm. If you're not willing to do that, I don't really think there's much point in you coming. Mm. <laughs> um, and I've always taken that to heart mm. I haven't taken everything he said right? <laughs> but I've taken that to heart so that um, although I've only got these two denominational mm. expressions I've basically been concerned with what I call orthodoxy with a small o all those who are interested and committed to Christ uh, who want to be faithful to the Christian tradition and yet living in present experience so I want tradition and mm. present experience to be mm. melded together. Mm. What it all boils down to is things that are torn apart, I think, are yeah. often mistaken. Fascinating. It leads on to a question which um, actually come in from, um, uh, from one of the people who listens to Godbot from time to time, which is uh, Nick Cooper in Northampton. He has a very simple question. Uh, he says, Dear Godpod team, what are your views on the filioque clause? Now, for those of you who don't know what the filioque clause is, um, filioque is a, a Latin word which simply means "and the son," and it's it's basically um, that in the in, in the, the creed, uh, it originally said that the, the spirit proceeds from the father, and then at a certain point in the Western tradition of Christianity, a little clause was added to that line to say the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. Um, and that's the, the sense filioque, and of course the Eastern churches, the Orthodox churches have always disagreed with that and said, no, no, we don't think the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He proceeds from the Father only. 
So um, that's the basic issue. So it's always been a, a, a sort of bone of contention between Western and Eastern churches. Um, although there are some Western Christians, of course, who also agree with the Orthodox that, that it shouldn't be there. Um, but it's a, not it's much a, the other way round. No, it's probably not the other way around. <laughs> but it's been a sort of rumbling issue within the, the church for about a millennium or so. And um, so we're probably not going to sort it out entirely in the next 20 minutes. But, um, but yeah, Andrew, it'd be lovely to get your thoughts on this, having... I, guess well, quite I, a bit. I, I don't mind admitting that I have had to have lots of thoughts on this because I'm always asked the question. Mm. I think there are actually two important issues. They're different, but they're important. The first issue is a question of what ecumenical really means. And I think it's very important to realize that in the early church, there was an equality of understanding as to what was the church in terms of bishops and jurisdictions. Mm. So you had the Bishop of Rome, who did have a place of honour, because after all, the Apostles Peter and Paul died there. So the Bishop of Rome was always considered important in terms of honour, but not in terms of superiority. To use, if I may, a theological term, ontologically, in terms of his very being, he wasn't more of a bishop than anybody else. And so the idea was, is that the church, which was made up of various jurisdictions, only one of which was in the West... Rome, the rest were in Greece and Asia Minor, uh, places like Istanbul, uh, once Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria in Egypt. And the idea was they were all equal. So when there was a council called in Nicaea, um, everybody got together, and in 381 there was a repeat of the 325. I'm just throwing the dates in for people who like that sort of thing. (laughs) AD, of course, except we say common era these days in historical circles anyway. Uh, When uh, they met together in 381 to agree the creed, uh, it was signed by everybody, including the Roman um, delegates, if I may use that term. And the Orthodox assumed this was binding on the church as a whole. So one of the issues was that the West decided, for various complex and quite good reasons, really, that they wanted to make sure that the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, was not belittled in any way or downgraded in any way because of various disputes. We'll get to that later. You can throw that in, Mike, when when we get to um, what the dispute was about. But the Uh important thing I'm trying to stress is that the East didn't take very kindly to the fact that the West decided Uh to forget the fact they'd signed the 381 uh, creed and insert something. So whether it was good or bad to insert that clause, I think it should have been decided by the church as a whole. Yeah. Which is quite a, I mean, it's a very contemporary issue, isn't it? You it know, is. It, how it, churches how, make decisions. Yes, is, yeah. yes. It, it is a very... And whether one part of the church can suddenly make a decision... Yeah. Unilaterally. ...just imposes something yeah. actually quite innovative and new that, that, that the rest of the church hasn't had a chance to talk about and comment on. But. Well, it's very interesting that Jane's here because we've been down this road before, haven't we, Jane? We have, indeed. <laughs> Many years ago. And I, I do remember one thing. There were disagreements about the theology of the filioque clause, to which we're coming in a, mm. to a minute. But I think there was a fairly strong agreement that we really ought to, to go back and start again. Yes. Um, this was a commission that Andrew and I sat on together a very long time ten ago. Y- ten years it lasted. Uh, was, it, was this an Anglican No, it was, no? It was a, um, an ecumenical 
Commission looking at the Doctrine of the Trinity. And I think that we probably started the resurgence of the interest in the Doctrine of the I Trinity. Think we did. You? With a little help from Karl Barth, possibly. Oh, uh, well, yes. Well, <laughs> yes. I'm amazed, Jane. Between you. Well, we had some help. We did have some help from people <laughs> no. like John Zazoulas. And we had John Zazoulas, who, who was a, a major influence yes. on the mm. group. Yeah. We had uh, people like Tom Smale. Yes. We had... Uh, Who's written a very good book on the Trinity himself. Yeah. He I has. Think. One of the Torrances was there. Mm, for people who don't know what I mean, there's a, uh, a clan of Torrances. Yeah. This was James Torrance. There's a torrent of Torrances. A torrent of Torrances. <laughs> uh, that was going to be a rough joke. No, I'm sorry. I'll, we can edit that by diet. We had Baptists. Paul mm. Fiddis yeah. from Oxford was there. and uh, my, we, tutor, my tutor. My, my, my thesis. He was my doctoral, oh, yeah, doctoral supervisor. Well, Sarah Coakley was there and Jane was there and we had... Lots of fun, to it be honest. It was fantastic. Mm. And uh, mm. I would put it down, I don't know about you, Jane, it's probably my premier theological learning experience. I've, that and teaching in South Africa, I would, those are my two formative mm. theological experiences. We'll have to come back to that one day. The point yeah. we're making is, is that the majority of the Protestants on that commission sided with the Orthodox on that issue of signing. Yeah. Mm. So we start That we shouldn't have done it unilaterally. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's on that issue. That's that issue, rather than the theological side of it. Or, or, or did they did they agree that that not just the church shouldn't have done it unilaterally, but the question of should it have been insert, inserted um, as a sort of theological idea? What was the conclusion? Well, I th- I don't know what Jane remembers about it, but I remember two or three things very clearly. The most important thing, which I think I'd like to say, is that the Orthodox do somewhat exaggerate um, the importance of the filioque in terms of the politics of the thing. Um, The filioque is a theologically very important issue, and I do think um, the insertion of the phrase and the son is not as helpful as it could be. I'll come to that in a moment. But actually, the real reason for the split between East and West, I don't think has much to do with the filioque, though it's the only formal reason the Eastern churches and the Western churches split. So it's very important. But I think the real reason was linguistic. Uh, Greek and Latin don't think the same sorts of ways. Yeah. Holy mysteries for sacraments mm. is a different kind of idea. But the most important mm. thing was the Fourth Crusade. Yeah. In 1204, the Western Crusade marched out to the Holy Land, except they took a diversion to what was then Byzantium and destroyed it. And I think the bitterness of that... Mm. Destroyed a great Christian mm. city, these Western Christians. I mean, it's it just for unbelievable. It no. it so I think, I think you've got to bear that has yeah. a great deal yes. to, mm. to do with it. Yeah. There's also and a bit of, bit of stuff on, you know, who was, who was evangelizing the Slavs or something, wasn't there? You know, is it the East or the West doing that? And there's a bit of a... Well, there tussle over, the, over you know, who, 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 was, who was actually going to... Well, this will interest you as a, as a, a staunch reformed man. <laughs> uh, the, the whole point really was, is it was the first um, flexing of the muscles mm. of Rome in terms of a universal yeah. jurisdiction. Yeah. Because what happened was the uh, missionaries moved up through the Balkans gradually towards Russia. Mm. And uh, Rome also moved in that direction. Mm. And... Um, it didn't go down terribly well. Exactly, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, mean, the, the, um, I mean, it's all very interesting. I, mean, I, I suppose the, the question a lot of people listening to this would, would say, well, does it matter? You know, what's, what's the difference? And, and um, you know, just adding a, a word on the end of the line of the creed, what's the big deal? Well, I think it does make a difference. We've already explained one grounds. So I think it makes a difference 
for very important reasons. Is I think if there's a fault in many of our churches and in many of ourselves, is we do tend to have a rather monochrome view of God or monist view of God. We think either just one being God, so that we don't distinguish Father, Son and Holy Spirit as persons, uh, or we have a kind of fixation on one or the other, and it's usually, usually Jesus, so we get a kind of Jesuology. Um, I can think of worse things. Um, <laughs> but it seems to me that what we get from the New Testament in, in, the, in the Lord Jesus Christ is a revelation of God in his love and also his complexity. I don't mean complexity in the fact that it's complicated. I mean that he is greater than anything we can understand. Jane wrote a paper, which I replied to, I don't know if you remember, about how we tended to over-masculinize God. And there is a tendency, even Mortman does it in The Crucified God, to think of the cross as a, a sort of deal between the Father and the Son, in which the Holy Spirit is neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. So the first thing to say is that the important thing about uh, the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, which ratified the creed, was that we had the first really developed doctrine of the Holy Trinity, which is about God's very being in personal relation. So you might say, then what's wrong with saying um, that Jesus and the Father um, generate or or cause, a rather awkward term, The Spirit. And the answer, I would say, is surprisingly interesting. A strict Baptist, if I may use that phrase, came to see me and said, I'm absolutely, totally against the Orthodox Church for dogmatic reasons. So I said, that's interesting. I said, well, the reason I support the uh, non-inclusion of the filioque phrase is biblical. So he said, what do you mean? I said, well, these terms proceeding from... Uh, are basically in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, uh, we even hear that Jesus says, when I ask the Father, he will send the Spirit. So although Jesus talks about the fact that when he leaves, he will send an advocate like himself, which is a great deal of evidence to show that the Holy Spirit really was as important as the Lord Jesus. The actual relationship between Jesus and the Spirit and the Father, in biblical terms, appears to me that the, the Father is the fount of the Trinity. Now, this is difficult language because the difficulty is people think uh, the fount means there's a before and after yes. effect. Now, you, you started me off, so you'll have to bear with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the, the, the whole thing about the so-called air in dispute, which I was waiting for Mike I'm to sorry, come in. I'm sorry. I'll leave you a bit slow you. there, Mike. Yeah, I'll slow. Uh, Mike. About the air in dispute was they tried to argue there was a time, as it were, when Jesus did not exist. They had a slogan, didn't they? There was when he was not. There was when he was not. They, used, they actually sang it. They sang it. For any ancient Greek speakers or like our listeners. People who like incidental information should know that when this phrase became popular, it was sung on the road yes. as a sort of musical yeah. on the way to Nicaea. Mm. And mm. It comes from a collection of songs called the Thalia, And at that time, very little music was actually sung in Christian churches, and it's often thought that Arius 
uh, was the first person to which we should have applied the phrase, the devil has all the best genes. <laughs> <laughs> Worship leader with slightly dodgy theology. Yes. <laughs> anyway, as you know, the best theology Perish is the, the incidental throwaway lines. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, just to get back to the point, the whole dispute was based on the fact that Jesus was denied by the Arians to be God in the same sense mm. that Yahweh was God. Mm. And that was all what it was about. That's fine. The Holy Spirit in the Council of Nicaea only gets, as you know, one line. All it says about the Holy Spirit is, and the Holy Spirit. It says nothing at all about who the Holy Spirit is. Presumably because at that stage, nobody was denying anything much about the Spirit. It's only later that the, the people, the Macedonians, came along and said, oh, we don't think the Holy Spirit was divine. So they had to add a whole lot of well, other clauses there. That, that's tricky, Mike. It's possible that nobody denied. It's also possible nobody thought about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's possible. Yeah, there wasn't, a, in one sense, a clearly articulated understanding of the divinity, full divinity of the Holy Spirit as part of the Trinity at that stage. In not, not until um, Basil from yeah, Cappadocia, exactly. um, in what is now Turkey, wrote his famous treatise, yeah. and I still think one of the best treatises mm. on yes. the Holy Spirit, yep. in which for the first time he articulated what many believers had already felt in their hearts, I think. Yeah. The Holy Spirit really was not just an influence floating around yeah. Uh, Christ in his earthly life, he was a person like Jesus, who said, as I said earlier, was an advocate like himself. In the New Testament, as you know, uh, Jesus is, is the center of everything, and the Spirit is the kind of spotlight upon Jesus. But in Constantinople 381, after the treaties had already been written by Basil, they inserted a totally different notion of, of the Spirit, which is that we believe in the Lord and giver of life, which is, I think, probably taken from John 6, uh, who proceedeth from the Father, who together with the Son is worshipped and glorified. Mm. Um, notice who proceedeth from the Father, not who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. Mm. And now we come to the, the, the answer to the theological objection. The first person to object theologically to the West, as far I know, was one of the patriarchs of Constantinople, Fetius, in the 8th or 9th century. Don't quote me, it's one of the two. <laughs> and he argued that what you have done in saying that Jesus is equal to the Father is perfectly correct. But by making the Spirit the only person who doesn't cause or is not a generator of anybody else, you have made it uh, a subordinate, yeah. second-rate yeah. God. J Jane has a nice way of pushing yes, this. Yes, Jane has a very... Does she? Yes. <laughs> Talking yes. about the respective art in the East and the West. Oh, wait, two men and a bird. The, yes. <laughs> the, 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 the East has this kind of icon, the Rublev icon of the three persons, the Trinity, all equal. Mm. Uh, whereas, by and large, in Western art, it tends to be two men and a bird. And it is generally true, isn't it, that in Western Christianity, in its both, both Protestant and Catholic forms, that... that you, you could quite strongly argue, I think, that the spirit has been effectively downplayed. And, and no, it's, 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 you can't keep the spirit and also, down. And, and, and if that, I may put, yeah. put it in a rather curious feminist sort of way, uh, curiously gendered. Hmm. Um, so uh, I think a lot of people tend to think of the Holy Spirit as feminine, but in a rather unfortunate sort of way. They think of the spirit as a kind of eternal Cinderella. Um, she will get to the ball. But her basic task is to look after her brother, her superior brother, her mm. big brother, mm. um, Jesus, and look after the Father. So you mm. get that even yeah. in Augustine with yeah. the with the uh, mm. vinculum memoris. Mm. Um, 
the loving bond between Indeed. the father and yes, son. Yes, yes. Uh, and so the spirit is there, but it's always helping out. Uh, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean to say the Holy Spirit doesn't help out, but not in some sort of subordinate permanent housewife yeah. role. Well, Paul but calls him the Lord, doesn't he? Yes, absolutely right. And I don't think God goes in for subordinates, does he? No, I, I think that is basically the point, yeah. um, is that unwittingly, I would like to say, I think what happened is there were good reasons because the, the Aryan dispute had cropped up in Spain and people wanted to make sure that it didn't happen all over again. But I think they made a mistake to, mm. how can I put it, downgrade the Holy Spirit because that, in effect, is what happened. Mm. Yeah. To, to use a word I used earlier, ontologically, the Spirit is not quite as much God as Jesus. Mm. Mm. Or that, it seems or, not if seems you take this line. Yeah. 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 If you take that yeah. line. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but are you one of the people who think that we should just drop it or that we need to find something else to put in its place? Because you could argue that um, the problem with the West, as you rightly say, and as the Orthodox Church has always rightly said, is that we minimize the role of the spirit and the, the status of the spirit. But a danger of the East is that sometimes the spirit gets a kind of mystical role of its own that doesn't seem to have much to do with Jesus. Do we need some form of words that will bind the the three together in some way? We do. Way? I would have to question that, though. Um, okay. Leslie Newbigin, uh, who I worked with for a number of years, told me that um, some years ago at um, one of the World Council of Churches, it was the Orthodox who saved the day when they refused to accept the radical Chinese feminist theologian's view that the spirit floated about all over the place. And they made it quite clear <laughs> that the spirit was always where the father and the son okay. was. Well, that's good. Um, I think a more important factor is, is that what the creed doesn't do in 381, which is why we've got a, still a lot of work to do, it doesn't say what the relationship between the son and the spirit is. Yes. So I would like to drop it but carry on. Carry on the, that conversation. I don't think it says all... Yes, the conversation needs to continue. And I think there's so much interest in the, in the Holy Trinity now. It's been one of the great blessings of modern theology. Yes, we start absolutely. thinking of God yeah. in terms of a, a, a loving relational God. Yeah. So I'm all uh, for that. I also think, I mean, one of the effects of the filioque clause has been, if you like, to... to the, the, the spirit is always sort of filtered through not just... The, the father and the son so it's as if um the, the spirit is, is if you like only revealed within the son and it seems to me that, 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 that what you have actually in the scriptures and also in patristic theology is this idea that the, the, the spirit um is the one who hovers over what well, is in the scriptures you know hovers over the creation and his role is to bring creation to its fulfillment and it's 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 um it's it's renewal and, and healing now that's not in, not in contrast to his Work in and through the sun, but it's but yeah. you know the role well, of the Spirit. Calvin says exactly the same, and I yeah. think he he we've we've lost the role of the Holy Spirit mm. both in redemption and in creation. Yeah, yeah. But of course, th there's no incompatibility between no, those exactly. two That's things right. because yeah. Yeah. The, no, the bringing of precisely. creation to its fulfilment yeah. will be gathering all things up under its head, which is Christ. Yeah. Absolutely That's right. Yeah. So, and and in a sense, you know, if you think of the the order in which these things happen, I mean, I just funny. I was interesting. I was reading this morning Acts. <coughs> Acts 7, the, the end of the bit about um, Stephen's story and, and, and martyrdom, and has this very interesting verse, which I never really noticed before, that when it talks about you know, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
which is a very little Trinitarian yeah, thing yeah. there. Yes. But it's significant that it's, it's because he's full of the Spirit that he is enabled to see Jesus and mm. the Father, as it were. And so the Spirit becomes the one who, if you like, initiates us, brings us into relationship with the Father and the Son. Um, so it's not as if we're going to have to get, to get God and Jesus right first and then we get the Spirit, which is kind of what the filioque tends to imply a bit, I think. It's actually, it's almost the other way It's the Spirit who enables us to, 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 have, to have a relationship with, yes. with the Father. And, and the, the Spirit's role in the Incarnation is something that you brought out, Andrew, very clearly when you were uh, coming to lecture to our students at St. Paul's when you, you actually went through the role that the Holy Spirit has in actually um, bringing Jesus into the flesh. And, and I think mm. a lot of our students mm. were very struck by that because they had just hadn't noticed. They assumed that was something that the Father did to the Son. And the Spirit was sort of sitting around on her hands at Doing that point. <laughs> yes. um, and, and that just doesn't happen anywhere in the New Testament. It's all you, you, you don't get one without the other two, do you? Yeah, and, and, and in the great discourse of, of Jesus, the, the idea that the Spirit coming brings the other two with him. When yeah. the Spirit comes into our hearts, it brings the Father and the Son as well. well we I will come and make our I wonder if this it. might help. I, I pointed out earlier I was born in a Pentecostal church and we experienced the Spirit, I have no doubt. But we didn't have much of a theology of the Spirit. We, I don't really think quite a few of us wondered whether the Spirit was anything other than the power of Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, so I just point this out. Being a Pentecostal or a charismatic doesn't automatically mean you have a good theology of no. the Spirit. No, no. Having a good theology doesn't mean you've got any experience of the Spirit either. So I just <laughs> balance that one out. Yeah. Uh, but I tell you what I, I have learned is that I think the biggest problem in the West um, has not been an absence of experience because the Holy Spirit breaks through whether we like it or not. Mm. I think the problem is we've restricted his activity to certain fields. Mm. So you, mm. you get the idea that we've got the word here and then we've got the spirit over there that Jesus speaks through the word, through teaching and through the Bible and the spirit is about experience as if they're separate mm. from one kind or another. The best example I can give you was um, one of the people who, who were in the diaspora who left um, Russia after the revolution went to America and uh, went to Harvard for uh, a number of years, and he said something I've never for forgotten. He said, the trouble about the word charismatic is people restrict the Holy Spirit so much so that the life of the church has become institutional with it occasionally topping up mm. by the Spirit. And he said, take the Council of Nicaea and the great councils of the church. They're charismatic events in the life of the church. Mm -hmm. And I think mm. it's it's mm. it's putting the spirit back at the center of things, mm -hmm. not just personal experience, but um, leading the church into all truth. Mm -hmm. And, and mm -hmm. Thomas Mayle very helpfully says, you know, you tend to get charismatics and kind of liberals who are in, into liberation and that kind of thing. But actually the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers liberation. Mm -hmm. and, and Well, as uh, you pointed out, the, where the spirit is, there is freedom. Exactly. The spirit is Lord. Yes. Curios. Yes. It's pretty clear. And, and when Jesus goes to Nazareth and does his manifesto, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. It's Absolutely uh, right. Both preaching and uh, doing social, social liberation <laughs> and so everything sounds, else in between. It sounds like our consensus and the answer to the question of what do we think of the filioque clause is kind of mm, could do better. Is that right? Is that fair? 
be fun to work on it, wouldn't it? And actually really work together ecumenically and see what we do want to say I about the so. relationship. I think it, it, the, the most important thing about having these discussions is it opens up to us the extraordinary depth of God's love, mm. but also the mystery of, of yes, the Trinity. Yeah. I don't want to overplay this because the Orthodox sometimes do. But the notion of the so-called apophatic or apophasis, to use the patristic phrase, is not uh, when things get very difficult, we, we just say it's a mystery. Yeah. <laughs> Which is practice, a bit of a cop-out. It's yeah, a bit yeah, of a cop-out. It's, it's just to put ourselves into perspective. As, as theologians, we talk about God, and we hope through the Holy Spirit we know the mind of God. But there's always more in the nature and person of God than ever we can mm. discover. And it gives us a certain humility. Mm. So we don't always have yes, no answers. We got, mm. we think. What, what Andrew is talking about is the apophatic tradition, which is the tradition of saying that you can't say what God is, you can only say what he's not. Uh, and as you say, at, at, at its worst, it's a complete cop-out. It, it is. Um, I think at its best... At its it, best, it's a, it's a it, form of humility, intellectual it's a form humility. Of humility and a form of mysticism, which I think the West understands. Mm. It's a form of, of actual wonder. There's a time when there's more than I can say about words. Mm. I've often thought, as a, an ex-Pentecostal, speaking in tongues is yes. a kind of way of saying... I've got nothing else to say over to yeah. you. Yes, yeah. yeah. it's writing a blank yeah. check, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. I was thinking yeah. but, but, uh, but, yeah, I suppose I have a slight kind of thing about the apophatic tradition in the sense that, it, taken too literally, it would be difficult to square with the revelation of God, the fact that he's oh. revealed himself in Christ. We can say some things about God. But you uh, can find ways of talking about God that deny the apophatic tradition, that think we are actually capable of writing a dissertation about God that will tell you everything you need to know, and that yes. cannot be the case. No, that, that's true. <laughs> if, if I may also point out, it's very important to recognise the Orthodox accept the so-called cataphatic tradition, right. which is what can be possibly said, and I'll give you the proof. There is only really one dogmatic statement in the whole of the Orthodox tradition, and that's the Council of Nicaea. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or the creed that came out of Constantinople and Nicaea. There isn't really anything else. Mm. Um, so that that <coughs> is is about revelation, if if nothing mm. else, it's mm. about the revelation of God in Christ, yeah. and that's there's nothing apophatic about that at all. No. What's no. apophatic is is that Christ opens us up to the mystery of God, to the perichoresis, mm. the, the the interpenetration, the interpenetration, mm. eternal yes. dance of God to which we yeah. are invited. Mm. Mm. Which is which is an important thing to say because it it stops Christian faith becoming just a sort of a slightly arid theological discussion. Mm about, you know, we, we know stuff about God and that's, that's basically it. And, and again, I think what so all this does... So salvation equals knowledge. Yeah, yes. which, is which, is, yeah. which is gnosis, yeah. Whereas, yeah. which I this think is, is saying, a, a terrible danger. Yeah. Is, you know, there is stuff we can say about God. You know, God has revealed himself in Christ. You know, and and, and we, there's stuff we can know about God. But the point of that knowing is that we might know him not just in the, in the intellectual sense, but in the personal sense. Absolutely. We are invited into relationship with mm-hmm. God. And that's right. The, the sort of day-by-day relationship of prayer and encounter and service and everything else which is uh, I think is just a vital part of the whole thing mm. um, just to, I mean we're, we're kind of running uh, out of time but um, and it'd be great to hear just a little bit more about you've been quite involved in the sort of deep church um, movement and um, yeah, well from so a, a personal a point of that. view from a personal point of view I guess it's my rather late attempt uh, okay let me come clean <laughs> I'm over 60 now, and I'm not in the best of health. Um, But as I look back over my life, what seemed to me a chasm, Pentecostalism on the one hand versus Eastern Orthodoxy on the other hand, 
look strangely similar. Mm. Um, very often, they mishear each other. Mm. And I found in ecumenical work over many years, we mishear each other. Yes. And I want to put together living experience of Christ mm. with a firm understanding that Christianity is a material uh, religion. Yes. Christ died on the cross, not up in some funny virtual space. Um, he didn't die in some imaginary place. He died on a cross. It's also it's an raised histo- bodily. Bodily. Okay, good stuff. <laughs> it's historical. Uh, we are members of an historical community. So what Deep Church has been about, in fact, there were four of us who kicked it off. One was Simon Downham, who uh, is a former curate of here and is now incumbent, as you know, at St. Paul's. The other was Ian Stackhouse, former new church leader, now uh, a Baptist pastor in Guildford. The other one was Luke Bretherton, who works at King's, and there was me. So that was two Anglicans, uh, a sort of Baptist new church, and a sort of um, strangely curious orthodox. (laughs) And what we tried to do in the book we put together, which uh, was um, subtitled Deep Church, was to put together the idea that it's not a question of if you're an Anglican, um, you've got to either decide that you're going to be low church or high church, or that if you're Protestant, you've got nothing left of the Catholic tradition that you need to have. All of these things are lazy ways of thinking. We need to equip the saints of the church to know about the saints of the past. We need to let people know uh, that theology is what Christians do together uh, in the love of God. And what we need to do is to meet, talk, pray, and find ways in which the tradition of the church, and I use that word not meaning against the scripture, I mean including the whole issue of the scripture, how we let that relate to modern living. It's very important because I think liturgy, which is a word that we don't use very much, is something which you learn when you're young and it stays with you. Um, Little things that um, people forget. Sunday school choruses Mm -hmm. was my liturgy as a child. I have to confess, I sometimes wake up in the night and sing uh, a Sunday school chorus. Mm. They, I don't know where they come from. <laughs> I went to an old people's home and there was a man who was dying who was 70 and nobody knew what his religion was. I went in there one day and he fell over and he crossed himself from right to left. Mm. Okay. So I could tell he was orthodox. Yes. And I managed to get an orthodox priest in. He uh, confessed his sins, cried his eyes out and died. Mm. Um, and it was very, very touching. And I, I think uh, Deep Church is about putting together things that I think belong together. It doesn't mean to say we all agree about things. Yeah. And, and the, the title presumably is a way of saying not, not high, not low, not broad. Those don't matter going jointly. Well, it actually comes more from C.S. Lewis. He, yes. he wrote the phrase in 1953, I think it was, in the, in the Times. Yeah. And he's, he used the phrase mere Christianity. Yeah. Or deep church. Mere Christianity caught on because it was snappy. But deep church was the idea there was a a common depth of tradition and experience which we share. And that's what we've been trying to bring together. And the more deeply we go into it, the closer we become to each other. Which is sort of Mm. classic and orthodoxy of the small O and and something that... 
yes, class, can bring cl- together. Classic would be the word my late colleague Colin Gunton, who was also yeah. with us on this commission, yeah. would have used. Classic yeah. theology is what we yeah, want. That's right. Biblical patristic theology, that, that's what we need. Yeah. And a bit of Reformation in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Along with well, as you're here, and our books, as I obviously. Cafe theology. What else? Well, that's well, yeah, right. Well, we probably ought to draw to a close. It's been fascinating to have you with us, Andrew. Thank you very well, much. It's been indeed. fun. And uh, we always start these things with two or, two or three really interesting questions that we think we're going to debate, and we start with one, and we, we never get end up spending that the whole time. Flog it today. So we've, um, yeah. so we've well, we've, we've we've kind of got as far as we probably will on the filioque clause, and so oh, I don't know. I think there are several more well, hours worth of yeah. conversation about <laughs> well, that. We've yeah. introduced it anyway. Um, just a, a word for uh, those of you for um, next time. We we have tonight in the St Paul's Theological Centre our annual lecture, which is. Uh, well, it's an annual lecture. Um, <laughs> and two of the people we we've, we've <laughs> just been mentioning have Alice McGrath did the first one. That's right. And James Stevens did yeah. the, the one last year. Tonight we have um, uh, Mark Thompson, who's the Director General of the BBC here in England, um, who is coming to speak on faith in the media. And so we're really looking forward to that. And uh, it may be that some of that might find its way into the next God Pod. So if you're interested in the whole area of theology, faith, and the media, and how the two relate to each other, then. Uh, look out for the next edition of God Pod when uh, either we might have a bit of mark on that or, or we can, we'll discuss it ourselves. So um, uh, that'll be next time. Can I leave you with a passing thought? Mm. My final thought would be for all you Bible teachers out there, all you teachers of theology, something I've found helpful as I've got older when I stand up in front of a large group or a small group is to use the phrase, I don't know. <laughs> one of my favorites yes <laughs> you don't always have yeah. to have the answers yeah 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 then it says something important about the relationship between us and god about this it thing does mm-hmm. we don't know everything about him good not well, that encouraging for yeah. <laughs> we know something <laughs> thank you jane very good lovely to be here thank you, you andrew thank you for having me. thank you andrew now, that was god pod i think that was god pod 36 uh, and there'll be another one along soon. So um, like wherever buses, you are, it? wherever you are, have a great month or a few weeks until the next time round. Okay, goodbye. That was God Pod, a podcast from the St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.